Messiah Community Radio Talk Show. This is Michael James Lauren, your host, and wow, that brain of ours is a big subject, and we have a special guest. His name is Dr. Timothy Jennings, and he has a great book. It's called The God-Shaped Brain, How Changing Your View of God Transforms Your Life. And welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. You have uh, quite a great background here as far as being a board-certified Christian psychiatrist, master psychopharmacologist, lecturer, international speaker, and also you were voted America's top psychiatrist by Consumer Research Council of America. Wow, 2008, 2010, and 2011. Very good. Thank you. Yeah, so... We could probably spend most of the hour talking about my problems, but we're not going to do that. We're going to talk about the God-shaped brain. How did you come up with this subject? You know, I've been researching um, for many years the interface, be- the inter- interface between um, our beliefs and how our physiology works. I've always been fascinated by it. And over the course of time seeing patients, looking at the neuroscience, reading scripture, it became more and more evident that the way we think, how we think, um, and our, our belief system itself – structurally changes our brain uh, based on the choices and decisions we make. Yes. Something interesting that I took away right away was that not trusting that God is sovereign, that seems to be a central theme in your book, that just the fact that we don't trust fully the love of God, you make that very clear about the love of God, and that really is the lifeline for the health of all human beings, is, is the love of God really understanding that, and that sometimes we get it wrong and that we are kind of motivated by an unhealthy fear of God, and we don't quite understand the love of God. Therefore, you know, we don't really find ourselves as healthy as we can be. Is that correct? Well, that's, that's exactly right. Our, our brains and bodies respond differently depending on the view of God we hold. If we see God and experience him as a benevolent being, as revealed in Jesus, um, greater love is no man than to give his life for a friend, so forth, the God of love, we activate circuits in our brain that actually calm the brain's fear circuitry down. But if we worship a God who is um, somehow authoritarian, dictator-like, a God who inflicts punishment upon us, one we must be protected from, then we actually activate the brain's fear circuitry. And when we do that chronically, it activates our immune system, increasing inflammation in our body, and it contributes to a whole host of health problems, uh, from diabetes to obesity, but also eventually reacts back upon the brain, increases our risk of mental health problems, such as depression and late-life dementia. So when we have fights with our spouses or <laughs> whomever, you know, our, our brains sometimes, you know, we can get a headache. You mentioned that, that sometimes, uh, I mean, what, what happens to the brain? Can you, can you get a headache? Can you feel just uh, completely beyond what we're supposed to feel like? I mean, you mentioned that we're really meant to be optimally healthy as people, and we're not. Yeah, the big, one of the big principles I try to describe in the book is that God is the creator. He builds space, time, energy, matter, and his laws are the protocols upon which reality are built. When we live in harmony with his designs and his laws, it's healthy for us, but any deviation from his designs or laws is are damaging to us. And most of Christianity struggles with really appreciating and applying this distinction. There's this artificial idea that God's laws uh, are functionally like ours, rules imposed and, uh, and breaches require punishment. But let me just make it very simple. Human beings can pass laws to make marijuana legal. We can never pass laws to make it healthy. 
You see, God's laws are the laws upon which reality functions. Now, you mentioned love earlier. I describe in the book the principle of beneficence or giving and how God, who is love, when he constructed his universe, he built it to operate on this protocol of beneficence or giving, the law of love functionally. And so a simple example is every breath we take, we give away carbon dioxide to the plants, and the plants give back oxygen to us, a never-ending circle of giving upon which life is built. Now, we are still free to transgress the law. We can take a plastic bag and tie it over our head and selfishly hoard our carbon dioxide to ourselves. But the wages of that is death. And so we understand very quickly when we move from this imperialistic imposed law construct to a uh, design law construct, what the Bible is trying to teach us and what God is trying to lead us to, back to a relationship with him, so we can live in harmony with his principles and designs, which are always restorative and healing to us. So the Bible says the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving or bringing life to the soul, because it's the very protocols upon which life are built. You mentioned that. You mentioned about like electricity even, that the electric... Uh, you know, the flow of the current and that when you turn a light switch off, then it stops. And of course, there's darkness at that point and you turn it on and then the current electricity flows. Something you mentioned so interesting that everything was meant to go around, if you will, in that circle of life. Don't worry, I'm not going to sing the Elton John song. OK, but uh, as far as that, you know, you give a plant light and then it gives off you know, oxygen, if you will, or carbon dioxide. And, uh, you, you tell me. <laughs> and and everything, there's, there's, you know, kind of like a giving. Everything has to give back, you say. Um, and I found that fascinating. You even talk about, you know, the clouds and the ocean. And could you talk a little more about that, make sense of that? Sure. So, so you see this principle of giving, the circle. In every living system, if it's going to be alive, it must give. So the oceans give their waters to the clouds, which rain over the lands, forming lakes, rivers, and streams, which flow back to the ocean, a never-ending circle of giving, which life is built upon. But if a body of water separates from that flow, that circle, and doesn't give, it stagnates and everything, and it dies. There's a body of water in the Middle East that receives water from the Jordan, but doesn't give any away, and that body is called the Dead Sea. And, and it's and it's dead because it doesn't flow anymore. And that's that's another example of the design law of love built into nature. Uh, the electrons, uh, electricity is the flow of electrons from one atom to another, but they only flow from one atom to another when there's a closed circle we call a circuit. And when you break the circle or the circuit, then the electrons stop flowing, and so our appliances go off. And when you connect the circle or the circuit, the electrons flow. In our economy, for an economy to be healthy, the money has to be in circulation. If you remove the money from circulation, the economy will die. And God tried to teach this very lesson with a simple object lesson in Bible times that has been grossly misunderstood. And that simple lesson was the sacrificial system. When a, when a sinner would, would confess his sins, he would confess his sins on the head of the animal. And then the sinner, not the priest, would cut the circulation. And the Bible says in Leviticus, the life is in the blood. And what does the blood do? It just circles, it just circles. But when you cut the circulation, then you're severing the design, and what happens? Death ensues. So the Bible is a simple lesson saying, sin is breaking my design, the circle of giving, and when you break the design, that results in the cessation of life or death. That is the teaching that God is trying to teach us, but many people have missed it and, and have taken those very object lessons and reinterpreted them through the lens of how human laws work. We can't make space, time, and energy, and so what we do is we make up rules, 
and that if you break our rules, we will inflict punishments upon you unless you pay some legal price. And this construct has infected Christianity and has distorted our view of God such that we incite fear-inducing God concepts where people are actually more afraid of God, who is trying to save them, than the sin in their life, which is killing them. Yes, and, and you know, I think unfairly, I was going on online looking at some of the reviews, and of course there were many good reviews, but, uh, you know, people talking about, you not talking about or appreciating about uh, a God who can, you know, we can fear. And I, I thought it was absolutely false what they were saying, because if anything, you strive that we don't recognize the love of God the way that we should. And God is saying, I love you and I, I want you to be healthy. And, you know, of course, as a doctor, as a psychiatrist, you want people to be healthy. And so I thought that was a little bit of an unfair assessment. You know, um, sometimes I, I walk away from, from church saying, gee, did, did we really understand the love of God the way that we should? Do you ever feel that way? Absolutely. And the fear that you mentioned, you brought up, they misunderstand the Bible. The Bible fear is not about terror, dread, uh, anxiety. It's about awe, admiration, adoration, reverence. And so when we come to see God in his true light, as revealed in Jesus, a God who loves us so much that he would actually give his life for us, yet is also all-powerful creator, sustainer of all things, we get an overwhelming awe, admiration, reverence. It humbles us. And that is the biblical sense of fear. And if you make the Bible harmonized, it makes perfect sense because the Bible says perfect love casts out all fear. When we come to love God, our terror, our dread of him goes away. Mm -hmm. Our admiration and adoration grows much more. Yes, and I love the way you make that clear. And uh, a lot of beautiful stories. I mean, my goodness, you like to tell good stories. And, uh, and and that's in this book. There are many of them, and we'll talk about it. But let's just talk about this for just a second, okay? You're, uh, you're a psychiatrist, okay? And you have a book called The God-Shaped Brain. And Pardon me. So uh, tell us, you know, as far as finding your audience and whom you're talking to, really, uh, what would you like people to know about their brains? Well, the brain is pliable. It's in a constant state of flux. Uh, it's, it's changing moment to moment, building new connections, pruning back old ones based on the actual life experiences, choices, decisions, and thoughts. For instance, uh, the reductionistic, humanistic person might say, well, our genes are pre-programmed and everything's kind of wired biologically, and that is so false. I'll give you a simple example. And this is the difference between your brain and your mind. Your brain is the hardware, the, the, the actual brain tissue, the neurons, the glia, the, the chemicals your brain makes, something you could actually touch if you opened up your skull. That's your brain. Your mind is, is analogous to like a computer software. For instance, you and I both have an English software package. Our English language is not programmed in the DNA. We were not born speaking English. It was uploaded after birth. And no matter what language, your primary language, if you were adopted out of that country to another country and raised in another country, you would have had another language uploaded instead. Now, we cannot open your brain anywhere and touch the language. It's not something that's tu that, that we can touch. It's, it's part of the mind. But today, you and I, I'm, I'm only, only speak one language. I'm not bilingual. But if I wanted to study and learn a new language. That was a choice, not from my brain. My brain doesn't pre-program me to do that. I have to choose to learn that language or learn a musical instrument or take art lessons or learn to play golf. But whatever I choose to engage in, my brain then will begin changing structurally. New neural connections, new pathways, new networks will form to correspond with the ability to perform that behavior or learn that ability. Yes. Thus, our brain is responding constantly to the decisions we make. 
And this is why the Bible talks about we must bring every thought into captivity to Jesus Christ, because as we change our thinking, we're actually changing our brain structure and ultimately our, our, uh, who we are and our becoming. Yes, and I found that pretty fascinating in your book because the whole spiritual battle, and you mentioned, of really what Satan tries to do to people as far as getting them to distrust God. That's a big one. And, of course, that occurs with selfish behavior. And, and as you said earlier, it doesn't include giving. It includes thinking of oneself. And so uh, how does that affect your, if you will, your business? You know, as a psychiatrist, uh, when it comes to medication, is that a whole different subject? Or do you try to you say, hey, you know, you could change your brain this way? No, no we, are, we are, as I understand it, tripartite entities. We are uh, body, soul, and spirit. Uh, body is soma in the Greek New Testament. Uh, soul is psyche. That's the Greek word for soul in the New Testament is psyche, where we get psychiatry and psychology, and it means your individuality, your identity, your thought processes. And spirit is the Greek word pneuma, from where we get pneumonia and pneumatic tire, and it means translated in various places, either wind or breath or breath of life. And so if you think about a computer, for a computer to be operational, it has to have a body, hardware, machine, it has to have software, an operating system, and it has to have an energy source. And so we too, as, as living beings, have to have a physical body, we have to have an individuality, an identity, a mind, a software, and we have to have a life energy source. And, and so in my practice, just as with your computer, any of those things can be problematic, so too in my practice of treating people, some people come in with problems in their body, physiological problems. Obvious ones would be things like hypothyroidism. The thyroid isn't working, and that affects the brain function, and so they need thyroid medicine. It's an easy, simple, straightforward solution. Um, but other biological problems, schizophrenia is a biological problem, neuro neural structural, neurochemical problem that needs biological intervention. Uh, however, there are some problems uh, of resentment, bitterness, hostility, yes. grudge-holding, there is no medicine that is going to resolve that. And, and I give people the example, I can't give you a pill that can start you speaking a new language today. That can't happen. Uh, so people who have patterns of thinking, patterns of operating, belief systems that are destructive, that's where the psychotherapy and the counseling come in to help them new, learn new ways of thinking and understanding and believing that is more consistent with how reality works and is healthier hmm. for them. Interesting. You mentioned also that there have been people who died not because they were sick, but because they thought they were dying. <laughs> and so, you know, they believed God wasn't going to be there for them and take care of them. And therefore, they actually died from from thinking of, you know, they were neglected and so forth by by God and out of his hands rather than someone who trusts that uh, oh, they're always in the hands of God. I found that fascinating. Yes, the, the body absolutely responds to the mind. Uh to, to all the way to the extremes where people can actually die, but most of us have experienced the body's reaction to our thinking processes. If you've gotten up in front of a group to give an announcement or a speech or a performance, you might your hands may start sweating or your armpits may sweat or you get butterflies in your stomach. Some people get so so distraught. And a basketball player in the 60s and 70s named Jerry West um, for the Lakers told, told about before every game he would vomit before every game. Body responding. People who have stress ulcers, if you've heard of stress ulcers, these are ulcers in their stomach. They're not pretend ulcers or makeup ulcers, but they're called stress ulcers because the body is reacting to mental stress, thought processing problems. Well, it can be very extreme, and we've heard case reports, most people may have heard of this, where a sudden shock, a sudden tragic information like the death of a loved one can cause people sometimes to have a heart attack and die. And um, sometimes people who have very... Um, 
uh, unhealthy beliefs like they've been cursed by a shaman or a witch doctor in their culture, that can actually result in them getting physiologic symptoms of sickness and ultimately taking to their bed and dying. This has been documented. Yeah, I mean, because when people are converted, they come to Christ and they are healed, you know, and converted and changed um, everywhere, you know. Uh, a lot of people don't think that includes the brain so much, or at least the physiological part of it. And that's what makes this book so interesting, is you get into, you know, how the brain actually changes. And I'm, you could have gone even further with that, but, you know, I love the, how you used the scriptures to drive home the point, along with real-life stories and... Uh, you know, you didn't lord it over us as far as with medical knowledge, but you do drive home the points. And uh, how can you break that down for us as far as the scientific knowledge of what happens to the brain? Well, um, the, the brain has various uh, proteins. We'll talk about one, but these proteins are like um, fertilizer for the brain. Uh, one's called brain-derived neurotrophic factor. Brain-derived means the brain makes it. Um, and neurotrophic means it makes the neurons grow strong. So think of it as fertilizer. Um, for the for the brain when the neural circuit has that particular protein it will branch out new connections sprout new neurons and and when it's not available then the things don't grow well brain derived neurotrophic factor does not come from the dna in that form it comes off the dna as a precursor protein called pro bdnf pro brain derived neurotrophic factor and where bdnf is fertilizer for the neurons pro bdnf is actually weed killer if the pro bdnf binds to a neuron and acts on a dendrite, it will kill it, it will prune it back, whereas the BDNF will cause it to grow stronger and sprout new connections. Well, what determines whether your neural circuit is going to get the BD, pro-BDNF, which is first made, or whether you get the, the BDNF, the fertilizer, is the presence of an enzyme which will cleave the pro-BDNF into BDNF. Well, what determines whether you have that enzyme? And this is where it's fascinating. It's the activity of the neural circuit itself. If the neural circuit is active and being used, it produces this enzyme, which will prune or cleave, excuse me, cleave pro-BDNF into BDNF, and the circuit grows stronger. But if the neural circuit is inactive, not being used, then this enzyme is not produced, and then pro-BDNF comes in and prunes the circuit, prunes the circuit back. So you're in high school and you're taking a foreign language class and you're first it's brute force memory just memorizing words but as you're doing that you're forcing uh you're choosing to memorize words which make making the brain make new connections and as you practice that every day this enzyme is produced pro bdnf is cleaved into bdnf the neural circuit starts sprouting if you keep practicing over the semester over the year over two years then that uh that keeps expanding and the network gets more and more complex and and you not only get word word memorization, but you start being able to put them together in sentences and enunciation uh, uh, improves, but then maybe you graduate and 10 or 15 years go by and you haven't spoken that language. What happens? Your ability to speak, it has faded away. Why? You haven't used the circuit, so the enzyme wasn't produced, so slowly over time the ProBDNF has been pruning that circuitry back, and so we all know if you don't use it, you lose it. That's what's happening. And this is a brilliant design. It allows us to get rid of unhealthy habits or traits of character. This is how we can actually experience change. If we didn't have this ability, we couldn't forget unhealthy memories. We couldn't unlearn unhealthy habits. But because of this, by activating healthy pathways, bringing every thought into captivity to Jesus Christ, we can establish new healthy pathways. And over time, the unhealthy uh, habit patterns of life, which have plagued us, will slowly be pruned back as we stop activating. So you're saying that God actually knows what's best for our brains. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> well, there's no question. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, people don't think about that. That uh, you know. But once again, the whole trusting part, and uh, I felt convicted actually in reading your book that you know I don't trust God the way I should, and if I did, you know, there wouldn't be. Uh, all this, uh, you know, if you will, pride or unforgiveness or just, uh, you mentioned something in your book. Someone, I think I have it right, he was a quadriplegic, I believe. And someone had said, why did this happen to me? You know, why, what did I do to deserve this? And you drive the point home about uh, Job. Uh, coming to the point where, you know, maybe people pray for miracles and God doesn't respond and that doesn't mean that he doesn't care about you and that doesn't mean that your faith isn't strong. But it was really more about a witness that it's who God is, that God is sovereign and that, uh, as you mentioned, Job was willing to be a friend of God and be a witness on behalf of uh, of, you know, all his, if you will, angelic hosts or uh, that God is sovereign and he's worth standing up for and uh, that can you elaborate a little further on that what one of the points I, I that many patients who are Christian come to see me often struggle with ideas that are slightly off that give them great discouragement yes. like they have an illness a sickness of some kind and they're told that they had more faith then they would have a miracle happen and they'd be healed and if they didn't get healed it's because they didn't have enough faith but if you actually look at scripture you will discover a very interesting phenomenon. One, miracles are almost always done for the weak in faith through the strong in faith, but the miracles are not done for the strong in faith. And you look at the examples. Gideon, when he asked, prayed for his fleece to be wet, and then he prayed for it to be in the ground to be dry, and then for the fleece to be dry and the ground to be wet. He needed this miracle not because he had great faith, because he needed the miracle to strengthen his faith, so he could have more faith, more confidence. Um, when you look at the, some of the big miracles, like the miracles of the ten plagues uh, on the Egyptian gods, these miracles were not done for Moses' benefit. They were done for the benefit of Pharaoh, who was a pagan and who had no faith in God at all, and the children of Israel also to help them in their uh, lack of faith. Uh, you look at the uh, miracle of uh, Daniel in the lion's den. It wasn't done for Daniel. It was done for Darius. Same with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It was done for Nebuchadnezzar, not for them, even though they, in that particular case, did benefit. And in the New Testament, miracles that Jesus performed were not for himself or the apostles performed. They weren't for themselves. And all the apostles except John died a very mo tragic martyr's death. And the miracles were not done for them. And so one of the things that I have to help people realize is that those who have strong faith their faith is not shaken by a sickness, and they don't need a miracle to help them keep their confidence in the Lord. They trust him even when no miracle is there to deliver them in this earthly body. And, uh, and so, so it was very encouraging for many of my Christian friends to realize, okay, God, yes, I'd like a miracle, but you know what? I don't need a miracle to believe and trust in you. I trust that you know what's best, and if miracle isn't in the plan, that's okay. Use me best for your cause. Yes, I love that story that you told, and I thought it was, you know, I thought of Job, and then I turned the page later, and you do refer to Job. And um, let me ask you a question: as a psychiatrist, okay, do you call yourself like a Christian psychiatrist or a psychiatrist who happens to be a Christian? Yeah, that's how I, I do this. I promote myself as a psychiatrist who is a Christian. I don't really divorce the two because you can't. I take my entire philosophy of life with me everywhere I go, but I don't, uh, I don't market myself in the marketplace as a Christian psychiatrist because I just have never been comfortable using you know my belief in Jesus Christ as a marketing tool. That, that, that's just a little distinction I've mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it makes sense. And um, so I want to ask you that this is a little bit of a loaded question, though, but ever, you know, in your reading of the scriptures, and it sounds like you study quite a bit of the scriptures and read the scriptures, have you ever thought that uh, when you look at psychiatry or I should say, you know, the psychology that's involved, have you ever felt that, uh, wow, you know, uh, the Bible somehow has more answers or somehow that uh, it could fall short psychology uh, when you think about uh, answers to questions. Uh, do you ever find yourself in conflict ever? Not for me. I've, I've found perfect harmony between Scripture and science, but I've spent many thousands of hours studying out to find that harmony. But the Bible is, in my view, the, the best place for understanding the working of the mind and the solution for mind-mental problems. It is not the best solution for finding the answers to neurobiology and genetic defects. It's not. A, it's not. That's not its primary purpose. It is not. For instance, it's not the best place to find the answers to how to do calculus. It's not a calculus textbook. That's not its purpose. Um, so it's not. The Bible is not written as a uh, uh, as a um, genetic code book to teach us how uh, DNA and genes and and chromosomes work. That's not its purpose. Um, but it is its purpose to teach us how our minds work and how God's plan for healing mind and development of mature character works. So the psychology piece of it, I think the, the, the Bible is, is brilliant. Uh, and then the principles, the general principles of health are, uh, are also brilliant, but it doesn't get into the details of the specific neuroanatomy and neurobiology and so forth. Yes. I mean, if we kind of psychoanalyze uh, Jesus for just a minute, I mean, wasn't he... He was pretty emotional, emotionally flexible with people, you know, and he didn't seem to hold grudges or anything like that. And we, we kind of you mentioned just how perfect he is and where we fall short as far as uh, beginning with Adam. And and really that and you beautifully mentioned that the love of God and the love of humanity found in Jesus Christ uh, a love that we can't really come up with apart from him. And I found that beautiful. Do you, you look at him and say, you know, if I, if everyone was like Jesus, I'd be out of a job. Well, that, that's also, that's absolutely true. And Jesus, of course, um, if you look at how he approached things, he viewed people through the lens of the, the design law. These are my children who are, because of Adam's sin, born in sin, conceived in iniquity. There's something wrong or broken in them. I am here as the remedy from heaven to bring healing and restoration. He did not look at them through the lens of how human laws work. Here's a bunch of criminals who deserve to be punished, and I'm here as the, as the judicial magistrate to make sure the proper punishments are handed out. That's now how he saw things. Uh, much of religions of the world, including Judaism, including much of Christianity, has viewed it through that lens, and that's why they drug the woman in adultery out before him and said, well, she broke the rules. We need to stone her. That's the punishment. But Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. He didn't say, hey, what you're doing was good. He said, hey, I know where you were. And if you weren't drug out in front of me right now, you would have gone home with your head hung low consumed with guilt, shame, burnt, searing your conscience, warping your character, because what you were doing was deviating from my design for relationships. And whenever you deviate from my design, it's destructive to you. I don't condemn you because there's no need. Go and live a better life. Live in harmony with my design. Sin no more. So, I mean, it's really remarkable that if we do trust who God is, that he is sovereign, you know, that he is in control of all things. How would we be different? 
Well, I think one of the things is we trust him. We would stop living in fear. We'd stop living a life that is focused on making sure that we get what we want when we need it. And that includes not just on an earthly plane of getting all the, 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 the um, wealth that people are seeking. It also means in, a, in the spiritual plane. Much of Christianity is focused primarily on making sure that I get my sins paid for so that I can be in heaven and my rights to eternal life are, are met rather than saying, hey, I put my life in the Lord's hands as Jesus on the cross said, Father, into your hands I surrender my spirit and so Lord my life is in your hands whatever you know is best for me my family my friends that's that's my plan I trust you show me how I can be of service lead me and I'm going to go yes and I think of Billy Graham when you see some of the old classics that he really puts front and center the love of God that no matter what you've done that God is willing to forgive you and uh, you know, there was, of course, mass evangelism and so forth. And I'm convinced that what you're saying in your book and, of course, how it affects your brain, trusting God and understanding and being willing to receive the love of God so you can be healthy. I think that's missing. I really I really think that uh, people would come to God, come to Christ if they knew just how much he loved them. Uh, that's exactly right. If you you notice much of the world today has had a choice between in the modern world, between no God, we evolved from lower life forms, or a God who says basically the the, the core theme is love me or I'm going to burn you in hell forever. Um, and, and that's their choice. And I think both choices are false. I think there is, God, is a God, and I think the God who does exist is the creator God who says love me. And, and if you won't love me, I'm gonna it's going to break my heart, and, and, and you're going to die from a terrible condition of choosing to, to deviate from my design for life and being out of harmony from how life is built. But I'm not going to be the source of your inflicted pain and suffering. Yeah, people, I think they got that wrong a little bit in some of the um, what you're trying to convey, that you're really telling people that they're ignoring the love of God and they're turning their back their backs from the love of God and they choose their destination. Is that correct? That's exactly right. And that's what the scriptures are teaching. Yeah, absolutely. Now, one last thing before we uh, we close here, I want to mention you you talked about somebody who, you know, this world is filled with people who have drug addiction issues and substance abuse problems. And you've seen people uh, where, like a lot of people, though, we're in denial about what we're going through. And uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Because I thought it was pretty poignant that you were directing this person to the love of of God, that he could be healed and cured, and that he had a problem. But uh, like a lot of people with substance abuse, there was uh, denial, uh, I guess like all people. Can you draw that a little bit and, and finish that story? This particular person I was consulted to see in an ICU, it was an alcoholic individual who had drank so long that their liver was uh, really barely functioning anymore, and they, they really could have died during this hospitalization, but they'd been stabilized enough that they were going to make it out of the hospital. And I was consulted to see if I could transfer him to a, a rehab facility for uh, you know re- rehabilitation and getting him into an abstinence program. However, his attitude was, I'm not going to rehab. I've been to rehab four or five times, and I'm not going again. I'm going to go home, and I'm going to drink. And I said, uh, I said, do you know alcohol is killing you? Yes. I said, do you want to die? No. I said, well, if you know alcohol is killing you and you don't want to die, why are you going to go home and drink? He said, because I like to get drunk. I like it more than anything, and I'd rather uh, die than not get drunk. And I, and I thought, how sad. 
here, here's this person. None of the doctors, none of the nurses, none of the staff were against him. Nobody was going to punish him. We're all seeking to heal and, and to restore and to try and save him. Yet he is rejecting everything available to put him on a road to health and wellness and is choosing purposely just because of what he feels through that intoxication of alcohol to go down a path that he knows will destroy him. I think it's a great metaphor for what sin does. Some people choose that destructive lifestyle even though they know it's going to destroy them and the destruction is not coming from the ruling authority from God. Uh, God is the healthcare, uh, in the healthcare and healing business, but ultimately he doesn't force people into wellness as I could not force this guy to not drink. Yes, and there's so many people who want to be well and they want things to work well for them in life. And uh, it's tragic that it all has to do with really turning to the, the source of life, as you mentioned, Jesus Christ. And then our brains will be shaped if you will, in the image of God. So Dr. Timothy Jennings has been our special guest, the book, The God-Shaped Brain, How Changing Your View of God Transforms Your Life. And I should mention in the back the way it says, what you actually believe about God changes your brain. It's a great book. And thanks so much for being on the program. I was going to ask, you know, what if people want to go further with this and, uh, and get in touch with you and certainly buy your book? How can they do that? Well, the book is available at any Christian bookstore or online at Amazon. And then I have a not-for-profit ministry called Come and Reason, and it's comeandreason.com. A lot of free resources at comeandreason.com. Thanks for being on the program. You've been such a blessing, and uh, God bless you. Thank you.